on the same day. By the end of the first day, I think there was like 10 portraits up on the wall. And after a week, I think there were, I don't know, 150 portraits on the wall. I just stuck on the wall with Kaffir's tape. And then um, based on that, I then was invited to go to New York. Um, Jefferson Hack from Dazed and Confused helped me set it up. Prada sort of partially sponsored it and then Milk Gallery. And that's that's how I met Ali. Working hours were kind of um, a bit free, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. I remember we started at nine and then it just went on until when we were finished. And I, I distinctly remember shooting in the Prada store in Soho, yeah. which was cool because we had free run there. And everyone in the shop also kind of wanted to be photographed by you. And uh, and then uh, we, I think we were also shooting at the Mercer Hotel where you were staying. Sure. That was really They were nice. sponsoring it too. They, they gave us a room. Based on that, I was then invited to go to Hong Kong and do a version of each, each venue was um, Soho. So we started here in Soho, London. We did Soho, New York. And then there is a space called Soho in Hong Kong. So I did part three there. Um, and I subsequently did one, not in a Soho, but in um, Poland as part of Camera Image. Um, so a couple of places where I went where I would turn up as a photographer in film events, and this, including the Cannes Film Festival, I can tell that story later. But um, what's interesting, you better memory than I, Ali, what year was it you said? 2009. 2009. So I was looking the other day, so we're now... 2022 right? yeah. um, and it's a really interesting snapshot of the kind of hip little narrow band of hipness in New York in that period same in Hong Kong um, and th- to an extent I, I would say London was different in a sense because that wasn't so trendy it was like just people on the street and people who were visiting the gallery whereas the New York and the Hong Kong events were much more kind of like a little bit more PR managed so actors and Absolutely, because I, I, th- I remember you had the book for London with you, and as you just said, you were t- you were picking mostly people from the street, just as you saw them. And I remember you also just shot the street. I think there's like a really nice photo of yours of Greek Street at like five a.m. You mm-hmm. said that you just get up and just you know walk around, and if you ran into anybody in the morning, you might photograph them if they were okay with it. And then I think if you ran into sort of uh, celebrity or so because I think you, you photographed Tom Stoppard but you just ran into him yeah on the street yeah 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 and uh, so, so yeah London was much more you know um, based on coincidence and, mm-hmm. and availability whereas <clears throat> the New York and the Hong Kong were a combination because I also made a point that I didn't want to just have people come in that had been booked so if I saw someone interesting like in Hong Kong there's a really interesting venue again it was called Joyce. It was a bit mm-hmm. like a Comme de Garçon space where they sold a bit of Prada. They sold a bit of, you know, all these cool designers. And so if someone interesting came into the shop, I would also try and uh, persuade them to sit for me and children and people on the street. And it's quite funny. I was in Hong Kong last year shooting a film, which probably is a separate podcast because it's hilarious, <laughs> hilarious bunch of stories. Um, and... Um, I went back to Joyce with the idea of saying, should we do a, you know, a 10 years later version, um, which they were very interested in. <clears throat> but when I was in the store, one of the, my favorite shots when, in the Hong Kong um, series that I did was through the window of the store onto the street. And there's a 
big newspaper stand on the street and the newspaper seller was asleep. So like 10 years later, I go back to the store to mm-hmm. say hello and everything. And I'm standing there, same guy. Oh, really? Sleeping. Um, exactly. You know, he's obviously 10 years older, but yeah. it's very sweet. Nothing had changed in that respect. So the photographer, that's how we met. Yeah. Um, and then we I, got on really, really well. And I kind of, always when I meet interesting people, <laughs> I try and persuade them to leave there. Well, it wasn't your country anyway, because tell me you're from... I'm from Turkey, from Istanbul, Turkey. And I grew up there, but I spent a lot of summers in the States. And I went to university uh, outside of Chicago. And then I had moved to New York, uh, I guess when I graduated from university. And I kind of just sort of drifted into working at Milk Studios and Milk Gallery, which was great, you know, just a great place to work. But I, at the time I met you, I, I, I actually felt it was almost like a happy coincidence because my training is in film, like I studied mm. film, and I had sort of links to London at the time, and I was already sort of traveling back and forth between New York and London. So to me, it was kind of almost like a sign of sort of, uh, to sort of come to London, to move to London, because... I I wanted to be here, and I also wanted to be closer to Turkey. So yeah, you came to London, and yeah. then I mean, basically, our relationship has been a kind of on-off, you know, like mm-hmm. as as per project. So you've yep. helped me on many many projects, photographic projects, film projects. I just wanted to say one thing about the photography. I mean, I I have a lifelong um, love with photography, probably more so than film. I mean. Because I realize as I get older, basically what I'm interested in is the human face. So I'm interested in portraiture. And in the introduction to my book, um, 36 Dramatic Situations, um, I found this amazing quote from Ingmar Bergman. I was trying to find the definition of what defines a film, you know, and how does a film differentiate from a theater because i also mm-hmm. grew up in theater what's the difference there you know you could take the same play hamlet and do it at the national theater if you were going to film it what would be the crucial difference and it was always my trick question to people when i was writing the book and they'd say well you know you can move the camera around you can do this and the audience is a camera and you know and then i bergman came up with the most succinct and perfect description which he said you know it's the ongoing study of the human face. Yes. The face is amazing. It's like, it's very limited options. I say when I'm doing portraiture, I say, look, to my subject, I say, you know, you can have your eyes open or you can have them closed. You can kind of wrinkle your nose a little bit or, you know, but really your only tool of expression is your mouth. So what happens with the mouth? Um, in any kind of psychological situation is key in cinema to the psychological understanding of, of what the film is about. It's, it's what's going on the face, usually around the mouth. Um, and the mouth is capable of uh, like millions of nuanced expressions. Yeah. That's in- really interesting. The worst thing that's happened to the mouth and to photography is the selfie, of course. Yeah. This insane idea that you should be smiling like a lunatic in a photograph so whenever i take people's photograph they now automatically go into insane selfie mode you get this fixed manic grin like a death mask almost and i first thing i say is look i spend 
minutes saying, relax your mouth, relax your mouth, let those muscles go, because those muscles incredibly evolved. And finally, I can take the photograph when it starts to get the mouth under control. But the selfie has destroyed photography in so many ways. It's, for example, it's destroyed street photography. Mm-hmm. When I was in Hong Kong, I'd been working in Korea over the last four or five years, developing a project. And I'm fascinated by Korean, well, Asian cinema, mm-hmm. more so, I would say, than Western cinema now, much more so. Um, I'm addicted to K-drama. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a podcast just about K-drama. But um, the one thing I noticed was street photography has been compromised to the extent of almost, it's un- unworkable now. You know, I always used to always carry a camera. So when I was yeah. in Korea, I'd walk around. The first thing I wanted to do was go on the street and start taking photographs. You can be arrested pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, you certainly get a lot of dirty looks and people may even confront you. Why are you taking that photograph? And the irony being is you are then surrounded by people grinning insanely, taking their own photographs. And what's interesting about that, I suddenly went, the penny dropped, went, oh, it's a good thing and a bad thing. People now own their own image, which they didn't before because they didn't have the technical ability to own their image. Now, not only do they own their image, they own the manipulation of their image. Yeah. You know, so... Well, I think it kind of goes back to something that I've heard you say before about sort of if you own a, a camera and a computer, now you can actually make a film, you know, mm-hmm. like, and you can do that. But at the same time, because of this propagation, there is just so much out there, so much out there. And if you add sort of commercialism and marketing and all of those things to it, that sort of, I think, touches on the, the selfie, what mm-hmm. it does to you. It's almost like you're sort of marketing yourself in a way that or what you're doing is extremely interesting yeah and i find that i kind of find it boring to be honest with you it's boring i mean there's i i i did what i rarely do these days which i watched the documentary on bbc i mean having been a lifetime fan of the bbc both world service oh, yeah, news, yeah. radio 4 mm-hmm. and then the best of that documentary work mm-hmm. i find it now pretty much unlistenable and unwatchable mm-hmm. the kind of insane desire to be nice and to be kind of correct and everything Um, Mm -hmm. and i'm not just talking about the woke and the pc stuff but the the world service is now marketing itself as a kind of cozy you know warm and friendly place you know whereas before it just was the place where you kind of heard of a kind of neutral voice giving you news and information in such a good way anyway i digress because i i saw on my ipad there was a documentary about um, Instagram. Yeah. So I'm an Instagram, you know, person. You're on it. Yeah. I'm on it, you know, up to a point. Mm-hmm. And so I watched that, and I would say, I don't know how long it was, let's say it was 40 minutes, 50 mm-hmm. minutes, whatever. I'd say there was about five minutes of, of interesting information um, where they were talking about the people who invented and developed all of the stuff on Instagram, which is why I went on Instagram in the first place. Because you mean it, the algorithms, sorry. The algorithms are well. The, the, initially, this was pre, you know, uh, Lord Meta, you know, um, and Zuckerberg. This was before they got bought. It was like a, just a cool place for m- photographers, etc., mm-hmm. to put their work, and then you followed a bunch of people, and then that came up on your feed. Mm-hmm. And the minute you know Facebook bought it, they then 
corrupted that utterly into yeah. a kind of just another sordid piece of capitalism, right? I'm not interested in who they're feeding me, and my algorithms don't make sense to them. Yeah. But um, within that kind of limited amount of information, that was then padded out by really the kind of stuff that I see on documentaries now, which is like, I would just say, not good enough, not not researched enough. I don't know if it's a budget problem that they have, but it, everything looks like kind of homemade home, homemade documentaries now. It could be something to do with the fact that there's just this incredible need for content, which mm -hmm. we talked about before, that maybe they just don't need or don't want people to go in-depth as much, so that they just have the content ready to go. It's just this mill of things that needs to keep. Well, it's, you know, documentaries. Very interesting. I love documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to, you know, the things like the Dylan, you know, Don't Look Back. Amazing. And, yeah. Um, shot on 16 mil where, yeah. they, you know, they were like zoom in, find the focus. There was a, no, there was a sense of like just recording what was happening in front of you. I think we've ended up with the idea that a documentary is a film script that you then go out and shoot the footage to justify your script and then you add really bad Hollywood music in case people aren't crying at the right time. So it, to me, has no difference from mainstream Hollywood kind of kind of crass filmmaking. Even the really well-made ones, like the, 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 the uh, octopus one that everybody, yeah. everybody... My friend, the octopus. My octopus teacher, was it called or something? I think so. I think but, so. I didn't watch it, to be honest with uh, well, I watched it twice. Okay. Yeah, Has it, it put very, you off eating octopus? Or? And it was just beautifully shot, and it was very touching. And everything. But it was kind of selling the idea of this lonely man who went swimming in this kelp forest off the <laughs> South African coast and then met this octopus, and they had a love affair, right? And they, uh -huh. they hugged each other a lot, and then finally a shark killed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, meanwhile, there was a scene in it where, uh, you know, this guy who's become obsessed, and he, he alludes to the fact that he'd been a bit depressed before he met the octopus. <laughs> There's this scene with him in his house, and his wife's in the background, she's cooking, and the kid's there. You know, you get the feeling like the family must be really pissed off, like, oh, dad's gone off with the octopus again. You know, when is he going to feel better? <laughs> <laughs> I'm being very cynical, but, you know, but then he, he also was a free diver, so he didn't use oxygen. Okay, so, okay. You know, there was I'm going to watch it. Yeah, watch it. it's good. But then you're also aware of the fact there's a fairly large team of cinematographers yeah. who are definitely wearing oxygen, yes. who've been following him for months, right, to get the shot. Because there's an amazing sequence where the octopus is hiding from a shark. Yeah. And it kind of rolls up into a ball and disguises itself as a sort okay. of abstract sculpture or nice. something, you know, and, and wins, right? And it's yeah. like, it's a great moment. Cool. Um, but that had to be something that was shot over a very long time and then very skillfully edited into a sequence. But we're kind of watching it like it's a real-time event, mm -hmm. you know, and you keep thinking, well, where's the camera? So what I mean, just this, like, the better made they are, the more you kind of, you know, they're feature films. I mean, you almost have to suspend your disbelief when you're watching the Absolutely. documentary almost. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to touch upon something you just said about sort of the, you know, the Pennebacker, was it Pennebacker who shot the, um, mm -hmm. the Dylan documentary? And yeah. then you have the Maisel Brothers and you had Frederick Wiseman. Mm -hmm. So you had all those amazing documentary filmmakers. And there's the one with the stones at Altamont. I think yeah. it's called Gimme Shelter. So they all had sort of almost unrestricted access to their subjects that they were shooting. And the subjects were okay with it. And they had 
maybe a lot more limited equipment at the same time. And what's happened today maybe is, as you say, they have a lot much better equipment and there's a lot more money and documentaries sort of are being released for sort of commercial purposes. So do you think that's kind of why the approach has changed or is it because a general approach towards filmmaking has changed, do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I was in Hollywood, my 15-year period there that, um, where I, I failed magnificently in some ways you know i mean i had my successes and um and then they were always kind of sandwiched between quite long periods of failure you know and i always sort of say that the periods of failure are the more interesting ones Mm -hmm. because you know you don't learn anything with a success other than kind of i'm not quite sure why how great you are i'm not quite sure how this happened but i'm not going to fight it you know Mm -hmm. i mean you know um but the periods of failure where you actually have a, quite a lot of time to think about why it's not working and you start studying the systems. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in prison, you would do that. You know, like someone said, first thing Mandela did was to learn Afrikaans. Right, you know, okay. You know, so I had plenty of time to look at the studio system and the economics of studio, right. how, they, how they finance films and all of that. What I did start to see was something that was um, absolutely clearly put to me in, a, in an interview I did um, with uh, Brookheimer. Okay. Yeah. And I was trying to, I was being a bit smart ass, and I was sort of mm-hmm. saying, you know, if I was working for you and we're doing a movie, um, you know, and I shot the first day, you would look at the rushes, right? And what if you didn't like what I'd done? <laughs> kind of naughty thing to say, because yeah. quite clearly he's Brookheimer. And he sort of said, well, I'd come on the set, Mike, and then I'd talk to you. And then yeah. it would go much better after that. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, good. And I was starting to enjoy this conversation because he was being very honest. Yeah. He's just like... And what then what he finally said was, he just went, Mike, it's called the film business. Yeah. It's called show business. And it's not, you know, that's not an accident that we're using these words. It is a business. If you're, if you're choosing to make a film in a certain way, it's not going to be your money. Um, having said that, we talk about Vito, our friend. You know, Vito and I actually did make a film together, and we used our own money. Yes, you did. Yeah, biggest mistake of my life. Definitely don't use your own money. <laughs> Try and get somebody else's, or just use your iPhone and bypass yeah. the economics. Yeah. You know? But uh, it's film business. So uh, going back to what you said about about documentaries, yeah, they're now film business. Yeah. Whereas before, they they really weren't. They were a marginal. Thing. I mean, you would, you would see a documentary like Amazel's Brothers or something like that. You, you'd have to go and see it as a film in a cinema, maybe, or yes, I don't know how you'd see it back uh, in the day. I think it also might have something to do with like access, because would the Rolling Stones really have wanted to have shown like you know, because at Altamont there's the stabbing and it's all on film, you know, like, mm. would, and, or would the public want to see that, you know, mm. in a film like that? Funny enough, I read the other day they just found more footage oh really okay that's never been used before you know okay yeah yeah i mean talking about the stones Mm -hmm. so my film hero i make no bones about it is jean de goddard you know amazing still working yeah and he's he's probably just turned what is he now he is he's gonna be 90 this year i think my goodness yeah and and a you know a proud smoker a smoker, uh, I think also a drinker. Uh, I just, hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, just an amazing a revolution. So kind of, let's say, the, one of my few living heroes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and probably 
I've never met him. Mm-hmm. I've never tried to meet him with good reason because everything yeah. I read about people who do meet him kind of goes goes a bit south. But um, but Goddard, why was I talking? What were we talking about? Uh, documentaries. Goddard made a film called One Plus One. You know, I've seen it. Yeah, well, yeah. Was it called Made in Britain or something? It got yeah. t- became very controversial, and it mm-hmm. was based around him doing a documentary about the Rolling Stones. Yes. I also made a documentary. This is the parallel narrative. Anthony Gormley did uh, The Plinth, you know, yes. in Trafalgar Square. And Sky did a, like, 24-7 broadcasting of it. And Anthony Gormley invited me to, to come in as an advisor mm-hmm. to the visuals because they had all these cameras and everything. Yeah. And I had a look and I said, wow, this is potentially great time code stuff. Yeah. The cameras can zoom, they can do all kinds of things. And I tried to initiate um, a technical system where anybody who went up on the plinth could control the cameras. I remember this, yeah. Yeah, so you could make a signal and say zoom into a close-up or whatever, you know. Never took off because, to be honest, just the process of getting one person an hour up on that plinth 24-7. I actually went up myself for one hour. I I remember that. I replaced someone. So in that process, I think Sky said to Anthony Gormley, oh, get figures to make a documentary about this. So in the spirit of, um, you know, the event, mm-hmm. I said, okay, what I'll do is I will just mark my diary with, you know, let's say six specific times yeah. in the 24-hour period uh, in the next couple of months where I will just turn up and I will film whatever's going on. Yeah. And I did that. But I remember when I showed the final film to Anthony, um, he was very disappointed because mm-hmm. it was so boring. <laughs> and But I did the kind of, as it were, the artistic truth thing, which is I filmed what was there yeah. when I said I would turn up. And he eventually, there was a lot of pressure, and they said, well, can't you use some of the sky footage of the good bits mm-hmm. and make the documentary more interesting? So that's what what happened. Now, Goddard, right. when he did the, the Rolling Stones one plus one, he, he was in this iconic... Olympic Studios in London. Yep. Funny enough, where I had also recorded in that studio, because this is another podcast, <laughs> the late, great Charlie Watts yeah. um, actually produced uh, the first album I ever did with the People Band. Do you know, it may have been around the same time, actually. Cause it was exactly it's 1968. the 1968. Yeah. Yeah. And he basically, uh, Charlie was a wonderful man, and he, yeah. he gifted the studio to my my fellow musician Terry Day mm-hmm. incredible percussionist they knew each other from art school mm-hmm. he knew the people bounds very experimental free jazz group and he, he said you can have the studio for t- all night and we recorded our album there so I knew the studio pretty well Goddard filmed the Stones recording uh, basically recording the song you can't always get what you want Yes, I think it might be Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's called, right? Yeah. Um, And he did it in a true Goddardian way, which is he just filmed what was there. Yeah, he did. And and it basically was a film about a bunch of very stone musicians not getting it together to the extent that Raoul Coutard, the brilliant cinematographer, at one point, I think, just goes off Brian Jones and just follows the light switch on the wall. I mean, Brian Jones is really out of it in that, yeah. Jones is out of it. Yeah. And funny enough, the film finally comes to life when they bring in a, 
a wonderful black percussionist called Speedia Quay, who was okay. around a lot in various bands at that time. Yeah. And some and some black backup singers. Yeah. You know, who get, you know, and you suddenly have the song going from a kind of sort of a Dylanish sort of song into a funk thing. You know, yes. you, get, you hear the congas. Yeah. Charlie comes to life, yep. and suddenly the song takes off. So it's, it's actually worth watching the documentary just for that transition. But I think the Stones didn't, you know, because it was it didn't show them being particularly creative up until that point. The film that I saw basically intercuts its yeah. ten minute takes of the Stones and then ten minute takes of sort of uh, black power. Yes, um, of sort of um, social. So when you see the Stones, it's always in like the camera's sort of turning yeah, at yeah. three hundred sixty degrees, and it's just ten minutes long yeah. take, and there's no edit. There are no edits. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing what yeah. he does there. Yeah. And it was a period of of uh, you know highly inventive often very boring freedom yeah of of cinema really mm -hmm. finding where you know in the 60s mm -hmm. where to go next with all this new equipment portable tape recorder the nagra and either 16 millimeter or, or, or handheld 35 mil or whatever so from that point of view if nothing else that's kind of fascinating i mean i know one of your favorite films if i I hope I'm not mistaken, is Weekend yeah. by Godard. And yeah. there's the, obviously the very famous 10-minute uh, tracking shot of oh. the, um, the traffic jam. Well, I've seen it ripped off so many times. Have you? Okay. You know, okay. um, and, and certainly Tarantino and, and even David Lynch in, I think, in Wild at Heart parodies okay. that. Uh, okay. um, in fact, I just wrote to David Lynch because mm. um, uh, he's, a, he's a dear friend. I wouldn't say we're super close, but mm -hmm. I interviewed him in Poland. Yeah. Just one of the most interesting filmmakers around, I think. And so mm. because of pandemic and everything, I wrote to him and um, just out of the blue, and I thought, he's probably changed his email by now. Mm -hmm. I said, David, I don't know why you came into my mind. I just wondered how you are. Mm. Next day, I got a lovely email from him. I'm just sort of saying, I've been isolating for right. two years happily in my studio in Los Angeles. And I've just been painting, yeah, you know. And he has his, of course, his um, his meditation thing as well. Mm -hmm. He's one of the few people I think I'm really still interested in. I like his paintings a lot, and I like the fact that he's, you know, he's not just a filmmaker. He sees film as being something that is yes. a, another mode of expression, and in parallel to all the other things that mm -hmm. he does, you know. And it's not not the be all and end all. Uh, and I agree with that. For me, also. Yeah, he is amazing. I mean. I have to admit to sort of really getting into him after I met you and Vito, who was also a huge fan of David Lynch, and I sort of hadn't seen a lot of his work, uh, and then I just watched everything he did. I mean, just how sort of how he came up with like a film like Inland Empire. There's a funny connection here because uh, for many years now I've been going to um, this amazing festival called Camera Image. Yeah, um, it used to be in Łódź in Poland. Mm -hmm. And it's unique. It's just about cinematographers. So over the years, I've met the greatest cinematographers in the world there. And I've made a little documentary with David there. And I also made a documentary with a bunch of the best cinematographers. This was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, talking about the future of film. Right. With them all absolutely claiming, you know, a bit like, you know, uh, the National Rifle Association, <laughs> that they would have to kind of like take... 35 mil camera out of my dead hands you know and that 
you know, there's no way that this is going to happen. And then one by one, you watch them all switch to digital. Yeah. But um, this festival was, as I say, originally in Woods. And at that time, there was a big plan for David Lynch to open a studio there. Right, okay. In conjunction with the people around the festival. Mm -hmm. Then there was a big, Poland's very politically complicated. They fell out with the local government. There was a change of local government. And they were suddenly out. And they had to move to uh, another venue and they've finally settled in their third venue now and it's still going nice and strong Mm -hmm. but in that period Lynch started making films so he made Inland Empire uh, shot entirely on on digital I think it's his first on digital yeah Yeah. and it's uh, it's shot on the PD-150 I think I'd shot on the PD-100 and the PD-500 that so he shot a lot of it there in Woods and then he shot the rest of it in Hollywood on a, on a film set. Yes. I saw the world premiere of this in Woods. You saw it, okay. Uh, it was on the opening night. It was following a very long uh, Agnieszka Holland film about the life of Beethoven, mm-hmm. a live concert by David Lynch and a Polish composer. And then I think about one in the morning, the film started. The film's about three hours it long. It is three hours long, yeah. People were walking out and walking out and, you know, and by... I say by three in the morning, I was like thinking, wow, this is interminable. And I interviewed David two days later about the film. And my first question to him was politely saying, well, the film was very long. It was very late at night. And I, you know, I was very frustrated watching mm-hmm. it. But the next day I woke up in such a good mood. Mm. And the images were, my head was full of his images. And I said, so David, can we talk about the effect of latent imagery in in terms of film narrative and how that affects the brain? I mean, (laughs) and he just looked at me, took a drag on his cigarette, and he went, no. (laughs) (laughs) He said, ask me another question. So the conversation started there. I must find that clip and post that online because (laughs) my question was so long and so, you know, reverent reverential but i watched it again Mm. maybe about six weeks ago okay we were talking earlier about the man who fell to earth uh, yes nick rogue uh, original and i always describe nick's film as a a flawed masterpiece you know and there are bits in it that i even when i watched it the first time i thought weren't that good but Mm. there are other things in it that to my dying day will stay stay in my my cultural kind of like gallery in my head and i would say inland empire falls into that category the conversation we have is um very much about the fact of suddenly being able to control Mm -hmm. your as a filmmaker as an artist be able to control your film Mm -hmm. he said things like you know so i hold the camera i just keep it running because they're long takes i just say do it again i move the camera to the reverse and i go do it again you know, and that's what I'd been doing. Yeah. You know, it's like the joy of being able to not say cut, not mm. break the psychological moment, you know. You don't have to change reels. Don't have to change reels. I mean, the PD-150, I guess, I think it was like 40 minutes. You could shoot 40 minutes. Yeah. That's more than enough to yeah. kind of explore a scene, you know. I watched it again, and there's stuff in there that is, is absolutely sublime, and the music is incredible, and... Uh, and then it, it goes on for too long. But I really don't care about that. Mm-hmm. I'd rather a film went on for way too long, but contained these like these little kind of gems. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, th- I don't think I can think of a perfect film. 
that literally worked from opening credits to the end that was perfect mm-hmm. why why would it be perfect even if you thought it was perfect when you saw it you watch it 10 years later and the hair starts to buggy or they shouldn't be wearing flared trousers or something you know yeah. i mean there's a sequence in inland empire I mean, I love it because it's something that I already was obsessed with. So the idea that you're on a film set, mm-hmm. um, and I lo- always loved the idea that if the camera was just to pull back slowly, slowly, at a certain point you start to see the edge of the set, mm-hmm. and then you start to see the technicians, yeah, and then you start to see the camera, and you kind of realize it's all bullshit. You know? yes. But at the same time, if it's done in an artful way, actually you haven't left the drama. No. Because actually, you knew all along there was a camera there. Yeah. You knew all along it was bullshit. It was not real. This is called drama. So we never had a problem in theatre mm-hmm. of seeing fake theatricality of it, you know. And so there's this sequence in Inland Empire where... Who's the actress? Is that, uh, Laura Dern. Laura Dern gets freaked out, as only Laura Dern can yes. in a Lynch movie. She yes. gets that look. And where she sees something mm-hmm. on the set and she walks behind the set and then she looks in through the window ah yes i remember at yeah. the set yeah, yeah but now yeah. she's not she's I thought be- that was brilliant she's behind the set and she goes for a walk and it suddenly gets very lynchian because yeah. suddenly we're into another reality altogether as people understand more and more about film i think it's totally acceptable that 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 we start to explore the mechanics of film. Yeah. Starting with how do you do, how did they do that stunt? By the way, how are we doing time wise? You know, with forty-five. Huh? Forty-five minutes. Forty-five. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. You know, and we were saying just before this, how long is a podcast? I mean, also, you know, how long is a piece of string? I guess you know. Um, and you know, I would imagine that as I'm talking now, I'll be fading out, and some music will be coming in because yeah. I think we're. I think probably done for today, right? Sure. Anything you want to add to that? I was just going to say that I actually, I just struggled.